This morning is a little direct. The points are pretty no holds barred, just straight to the crux of the matter, and some of them are pretty like intense. So buckle up. God has us all here for a reason. There's something we all need to get from this. And sometimes his word is gentle, and sometimes his word is like, psh, like, all right. I hope that we'll open ourselves to receive whatever it is that God has for us. As you know, we're in the series talking about the will of God, right? We started because we're in the book of Colossians. We're doing a study there to figure out how we can live like those earliest Christians did. There's such a vibrant time. The kingdom was growing, and they were growing, and it was so amazing. And sometimes for us, church becomes church. That's not the way it's meant to be. So we're in Colossians, not just to study in ancient literature, but to become more like Jesus. In the very first sentence, we hit Paul, called to be an apostle by the will of God. And we're like, Let's put on the brakes. We need to know what that means. And so we've been in it. This will be the third week. Uh, there's at least one more uh, next week that I have. And if there's any more on the will of God as like a little subtopic, then we'll let that grow as it goes. Uh, but we're stopping for a moment to think, like, what exactly is the will of God? Is it even knowable? Is it some kind of vague thing? So that was a couple of messages ago. The very last one, last week, was some practical examples. We gave the theory of the will of God, that there's three words in the Greek language that mean will of God. So you read it in English, you're like, well, is the will of God over here, and there's the will of God over here. Well, one will of God is just his desire, his pleasure, it's the things he wishes. But clearly this world doesn't match up to God's wishes. But he has a nature, he has a character. And so we see some of the wills, like the things that God would love to see. Even things we'd love to see in our lives, just because we want it doesn't mean it happens, right? So there's a desire will, but there's also a plan will. Think like capital P, God's plan. God has a plan, and no matter what little humans try to do, no matter how big we think we are, or how powerful, or how wise, his plan will come to fulfillment. You know, Jesus was not stoppable. Jesus' resurrection was not stoppable. Jesus' return, judgment day, is not stoppable. That's what I mean by God's will. There's a certain kind of plan that's this overarching thing, and it just is. We live within that. And then there's also the word will sometimes used, like God willed that this person would do this, or that this would happen, like very specific examples of how God's will plays out. He makes some things happen. He steps in, causes certain things to happen. So within these three wills, we started saying, what are the verses that make it practical? Because that's very nice. Okay, maybe we got that concept, but it's not yet practical. And so last week we talked about in our planning, do we make plans or do we submit our plans to God? That's seeking his will. You might want to do X, Y, and Z, but how do you know you have tomorrow? What if we don't make it home today? What if the world ends tonight? Like, we don't know. So it's submitting what we wish to do and saying, God, your will be done. We talked about prayer, praying for his will to be done. Uh, we talked about the uh, money, how we use our money being according to his will and gratitude. So those were last week. If you want those, those are on YouTube. We record our sermons each week and on our church website. You can catch up on these. It is kind of like a package deal, building on it. So this week we have three more. And these three are kind of like the heavy hitters when it comes to God's will. And I'm not picking these out at random. I'm literally looking through the Bible and saying, where does it say, it is God's will that blank? Because that's about as blunt as it can be. If you read in the Bible, it says, it is God's will blank. It's like, well, then we should do that. <laughs> or we should not do that. We should learn, really know when to pay attention in Scripture. And those are those sorts of verses. So the three areas that we're focusing on today is sexual morality, sources of comfort, and believing. Biggies, right? You're like, uh-oh, where is he going to go with this? 
But if we allow ourselves to listen to what Scripture says, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter what relationships we're in, we're getting the best gift that God could ever give us. He's saying, here's how I would wish my philema, my desire for things to be. And you've got to know that if God wishes something to be that way, it's for our good and his glory. God's not some angry God that's looking to just like restrict us and say, do what I want and you know, I'm a, a tough, severe parent. No, he's saying, this is how I've designed you to be. And this is what will bring the most fruit, the most joy, the most success in your life. This is my will. So in these three areas, the practical living out of the will of God, I want us to try to open ourselves up to it. And you can think automatically, our world has a lot of conflicting images of marriage and singleness and dating and sexuality. It's a very complex issue. It's confusing. There's a lot of confusion around it. So what if God could just give us a few very clear points that we could use and kind of as a flashlight and you just shine them around in the confusion of where we are of the relationships we're in and say, what would be good here? What could bring good here? Where is there a point of clarity in the midst of a lot of confusion? So the passage that talks about this that we're starting with is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or an app, you can just go straight there. That's easy. But if you're flipping pages, old school, I kind of wish that I could. Um, uh, I can't do the Bible and the computer and the notes all at the same time. So I've just cut and paste here. So I'm doing a screen. But if you have a Bible, it's in the New Testament. It's one of these letters that Paul wrote. He wrote to Christians. Many of us here, I'm not assuming everybody, many of us here are Christians. We believe in Christ. So then the advice that he gave to them, we have to say, well, is this still advice for us? How does it work? And this one really actually seems like it could have been written for today to talk about how the world lives versus how we live. With each of these scriptures, each of these three sections, there's one question I'd like us to be asking ourselves. It's like a discernment question to see how it'll apply to us. And this is the question. I'll give it to you before we read it so it can kind of be like tracking in your mind. Does our sexual morality look like the world or like look different from the world? Does it set us apart? I mean, think back Old Testament. They had circumcision and marriage and not intermingling with other nations. They could keep their faith contained and pure. This concept of being set apart in how we live our lives, how we do marriage, how is like ancient, but really consistent throughout all of Scripture. And yet we look at ourselves, I'll include myself in this, all of us, we grow up in this world and we like, we're taking some things from the world, some things from church, some things from ourselves. We get put in certain situations. We kind of like, it's buffet style learning. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you end up with your plate at the end. And it's like mounded up with a million things. Well, what's good on this plate? What's going to nourish us? What won't? And so the point that I hope we get from this is that it is God's will that we would be different from the world around us in how we handle our sexual morality. What morals do we have? What's a yes? What's a no? What's okay? What's not? What's a green light? What's a red light? What are boundaries? What aren't? We shouldn't look exactly like the world. This is an opportunity for us to actually do better than what the world has to offer. So keep that in mind. And and we're going to get towards some specific questions of how we can do that. But let's just read what Paul says, keeping in mind, are we the same or are we different? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, Paul's writing, brothers and sisters, church, 
We ask and we urge. It's like, please listen to this and please listen to this. You see, we ask and we urge. This is for good. We urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. Christian faith is very practical. How you ought to walk and to please the Lord, to please God. Uh, That word please means to adapt to him, to please him, to be content with him. Isn't that a great definition of how to please God? To be content with him or how to soften your heart towards him. When I saw those definitions of that word, I was like, oh, those help me enrich that passage. So as you ought to please and adapt, be content with it, soften your heart towards God, just as you are doing, you should do this more and more. So it's the kind of thing that we can grow in. It's the kind of thing we can start with a baby step and grow to giant steps. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And here's the, st- the sentence that drew me to this passage. This is the will of God, the thalema, the desire of God, the wish of God. It is your sanctification. That's a big word. It just means your holy improvement. Your spiritual growth. This is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So morality means there's some sort of boundary of things that are good and things that aren't. So he's saying that you abstain from the things outside the boundary. And that each one of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So that, and catch this, not just that you'll be a good boy or girl, Not that you just behave yourself, but actually so that you won't transgress, which means like step over the line, cause offense, cause grievance, wrong someone. Transgress is stepping into trespassing, stepping into someone else's property. And wrong his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and we solemnly warned you, so there's caution here, there's words of warning. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, to be like him, to be like a bright light. Holiness, God's perfect holiness is like an unattainable perfection. We're called to somehow grow towards that through Christ in us, this beautiful holiness. So verse 8, his kind of kicker statement at the end of this passage, therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So do you think Paul cares about this? Yeah. Is he giving heavy language to it? Yeah. He's saying, I'm not even saying this. Don't shoot the messenger. This is God's word. So this is important to him. And if we look at ourselves with marriage, with singleness, with dating, with all the things in our world, such, everything is so overly sexualized and overly freedom giving. It's like, well, where are good boundaries and where aren't they? And not just how do we be like good people, but how do we be different kinds of people? What's the opportunity there. And so it made me think of the different seasons of life. And so I want to ask you to think, because all of us are in different seasons of life, what does like a good version of Christian morality in your sexuality look like for you? If you're young, single, a child, that sort of morality really has more to do with the people around you protecting you from the world and protecting your innocence than it does from your own choices. So that's a word to us here are adults. If we see any children or people that are you know, under age in our lives, they're often helpless as to whether they're confronted or exposed or not to immorality. It's our job to protect the morality of the children in our lives. What they're exposed to, when, how young, in what form. 
This is our job. And it's hard because if you pick up a phone, you can be exposed to anything. <laughs> so how do we manage the phones? It's our job to give them a great example to look at. Not just protect them from everything out, but have something good inside. But marriage is hard, and sexuality and dating and all these things are hard, so we're struggling most of the time. We're like, well, if I don't have it all figured out, how am I supposed to tell someone else have it all? But this is the job. Sexual morality for these young kids, there, there is a boundary, there's a fence, and it's mostly a protective one, but it's also one that can be fostered by a great example. So if you say, well, I don't think I've been a good example, well, today maybe is the day where we can start inputting something good into that container of imagination and of framework for those children who grew up. There is something that's out of bounds for our children. Many things are out of bounds. So let's be protective. Be overbearing if you need to. Be the, the, the bad parent. Take it for the sake of protecting something that this child will then grow with. We all have had moments where we weren't protected as we should. Like, oh, we've all had moments where we're thankful for someone in our life who did that for us. So you can see the difference. This is a season of life. Children have a specific way we can bless them and love them. But then if you get into adulthood, there are two categories the Bible gives us, either single or married. Dating we have as an option in our world, but it's not an option given in the Bible. So dating just means single, as far as the Bible is concerned. If you're dating, you're not married. You have not yet committed, so you're single. So you're either single or married. This is a consistent teaching of Scripture. So you have two categories you're learning how to like deal with. How to be single and how to be married. So what is the morality of singles? Uh, it's about waiting. And it's about patience. And it's about saying no to temptation, right? Like we're trying to preserve some sort of boundary in a way that honors God. Because if you boil it all down, our sexuality is going to reflect our spirituality. It just will, for better or for worse, for more or for less. So for singles, for the married, how do we represent this kind of like perfect, beautiful morality of Christ to the world as an alternative? Well, singles, we have things like abstinence, we have things like commitment to your future, partner, right? That, that's part of the singleness is that I want God to connect me with someone in the future and so therefore I live my present with an eye to the future, not just an eye to the present, right? In marriage, we have this, this morality that kind of creates a fence. How can our marriages represent something different to the world, something better to the world, well, that, that fence, that boundary, that healthy boundary has two components too, just like with children. There's the protection of the outward and there's the blessing of the inward. So obviously, morality in that marriage means keeping other people out. So the co-workers that are flirting, like you're, you're keeping them out. You're finding ways to avoid that yourself when you might be flirting with others. You're finding ways to stop that. There's the outer stopping. There's all the temptations and things. But there's also the blessing inside. A good example to the world means that within these fences of marriage, we're thriving. It's not just enough to have a protected you know, life and marriage of fidelity with no affairs, but to have it be loveless and lacking all the intimacy within it. It's got to be both. It's got to have a fence to keep out the bad, but it's got to be good inside. So to be different from the world takes both investing and nurturing what's inside and protecting each other 
from everything outside. And it's a team venture in this together to try to represent something different to the world. This is the high call of a Christian morality. This is the will of God. This is our pursuit of holiness. That whether we're young, whether we're adults, either single or married, that at every stage we find a way to say, I know it's God's will that I represent holiness. I'm not quite sure exactly how to do it in this stage, but I want to. I want to find a way to make my life represent something different from the world, to just go and do whatever they want, whenever they want. Is there something different from God that we can represent? So I warned you, this is like heavy stuff. There's no pulled punches here. But wouldn't we rather have God say to us, well, here's the line or here's the target. Shoot for us. Here's what will help you. And I, just as much as any of you, can look at being a child and being single and be like, I know the temptations there. Sometimes we fall to them, sometimes we win them, but they're all there for all of us. And then in dating, the temptations that are there. Want to be married, but not married yet. Still trying to live single while together, connected to someone before that day. I know those temptations as well as you do. They're hard, but they're still the goal. And then within marriage, for those of you that are there or going there, I know just as well as you what it's like to try to foster within and protect it from outside and not let things creep in and just keep it good and thrive. Like These are common to all of us. But what if... And here's my question for you. What if you could really craft a vision statement for yourself to say, this is my vision for who I would be in this season of life? If you're together with somebody either dating or engaged or married, what would it look like to sit with that person and be like, what's our vision statement for how our marriage is going to be reflected to the world? If you're a single person, what if you could write down a vision statement? I'm offering this as an exercise, as an experiment. What would that conversation look like if you and your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, spouse sat down and be like, What's our vision? A vision, as you know from like crafting vision statements, like if you ever, if you got the full expression of what you wanted, the best case scenario, where would you end up? Everything you're planning, everything you're hoping, what would the future look like? What would, what would that future look like? How would it impact? And if you remember from Paul's statement, he said it doesn't just impact you. Part of our example in where we are in dating and engagement and marriage is also the lessons we're teaching to the children in our lives. It's hard to build a fence for them of how they should live when the example we're giving is something different. So part of the vision could be, I would envision that my marriage and all of our marriages would be, and I'm, I'm drafting this off the cuff here, Michelle, we got to actually do this exercise, would be such that children could see and grow up to say there is such a thing as good marriage, and it can be great, and they would want that. Because we would have a good marriage. We'd attain that vision. So therefore, it influences rather than trespassing over their lines in such a way as to say, well, we're falling apart. Everybody falls apart. Good luck, kid. You're going to fall apart. Is there anything more to be hoped for in this area than that? I hope so. Especially because we believe in grace. And specifically because we believe in grace. So the last three things I'll say to you, and I give you that as a challenge. Make a vision statement for how your morality in this marriage, singleness, dating, youth looks. What would it look like if you fully got there? If you got everything you could dream? And how would it be different from the world? 
The three words that you need to keep in mind to make all of this possible is can't, won't, and grace. If you're writing, write those down. Can't, won't, and grace. A lot of times in this area, it feels like a losing battle. You're single, and so you're struggling with temptation. It could be in the form of pornography, or it could be in the form of dating, or relationships that you really shouldn't get into, but you're single and you don't want to be. So there are some who can't abstain, who can't stop. This is what sin does. It like wraps us up. We can't. So what do you do in that case? You just pray, God, help. Just pray for help. Ask God to help you. There is such a thing as a can't. We get trapped in sin sometimes. You're like, I can't get myself free. Yeah, that really happens. This happened to me before. I bet, if you're honest, you can say, these are times in my life where I really wished I could have done the right thing, and I, I could not. So in the can'ts, just ask for God's forgiveness. We ask for his help. But there's also some places where there are the wounds. You're like, I could, but I don't want to do that. And then here's this prayer. This is a good one. This fits to a lot of things. Pray that God will help you to want to want to do the right thing. Because you don't want to do the right thing. So don't pray to want the right Pray to want to want to do the right thing. Are you tracking with me? Does that make any sense? Can you follow it? I know I'm confusing myself even as I say it. I'm probably confusing all of you. The Holy Spirit will make it clear. I trust. Just pray for the right desire. Because then once the desire is there, that seed is planted. You're like, oh, I'll work with that. You'll go somewhere from it. And then they move from the wounds to the can'ts. But the third one, the grace, is if we could all just think hard enough and fix all of our problems, what's the point of Jesus? All right, everybody here. Resolve in, moment, in this moment to no longer sin, to no longer have an explosive outburst of anger. All right, we all agreed? Good. So now it'll never happen again, right? No. This is a battle. It is only by God's grace that we get truly saved from these things. Otherwise, they would just save themselves. They just fix all their problems. We don't need anything else. So the cancer and the wounds are how we kind of like wrestle with moment, but grace is the fix. And if you were here a couple weeks ago when the Teen Challenge men stood up and sang some songs and shared some testimonies, their struggles, not all were in this area. They're mostly in the forms of addictive behaviors with alcohol and with drugs, but they were in a place where they couldn't stop. But if they could have lived these long lives of addiction and then still stand here on a Sunday and say, yeah, it was a long time in the weeds, but I've been set free, that means that grace can come at any time. And it doesn't matter how low we've sunk or how far we've gone or how long it's been bad. And we get settled into the, well, this is just what it is. And we concede the point to the devil. You got me. You win. It'll be this way for life. No, that's not what grace says. We don't believe once stuck, always stuck. We believe at any moment grace can come in. So we wrestle with the cancer and the wounds, but we pray for grace. And if you can keep those things in mind, it'll give you some hope, perhaps. And if we're willing to do cans and wills, craft intentional ways of living that are different than the world, it will not just not wrong people around us, it will help people around us. It will give us something that to offer the light in the darkness. And this relates to marriage and singleness just as much as anything else. So... This is the will of God for how Christians can honor God with their sexuality. And it applies to all of us, because I've named all the seasons of life. And singleness can reoccur, right? Singleness can reoccur through divorce. Singleness can reoccur in seniors with passing of spouses. So, like, there are many ways this can be worked out, but it's still just singleness or marriage. And in every season of life, can we be a light for God? Our world could really, really use some hope in this category. There's a lot of a lot of difficult situations. I think I would love it if we could be what Paul calls us to be.
He calls and he urges. So let me do the same this morning. I call you, I invite you to consider for yourself, but I also stress the importance of this. It's a key way we can represent Christ to the world through our sexual morality. All right, ready to switch gears? Everybody's like, yes, please. Okay, move on to Ephesians 5.15. Will this be any easier? Probably not, but it's the will of God, so we're going to go there anyway. Ephesians 5.15, it's a couple of books back in the New Testament. All right, so we've gone from sex to drinking. Oh, crap. <laughs> Another one none of us can relate to. Or can we? I've had conversations with many of you. Can any of us relate to the fact of, it's been a hard day, I just would love to get home and have a drink. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it would just make hypocrites of all of us because I wouldn't see enough hands where all of our hands should go up, I think, if that's an area where you struggled. Some it isn't, but some it is. And what it comes back to is where do we go for our comfort? What will make us feel better? Not just alcohol. That's the example used here. There's a principle that we need to dig. So Ephesians 5, 15 through 18, just a few verses. This is Paul writing to an entirely different group of Christians, a whole other church. It's his advice to them, and it's his advice to us, how we do the will of God. And you'll see when we get there in verse 17 what the will of the Lord specifically is. So, look carefully, he says, which means diligently and accurately. Like, be precise. Open up the cupboards. Open up the closets. Look into how you walk. The will of God is not abstract. The will of God is practical. The will of God is tangible, measurable, seeable. How you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Again, God, this is God's wisdom. It's not God's harshness, God's meanness, God's unfairness. It's God's wisdom. It's good for us. Making the best use of the time. He's about to go on to talk about how alcohol like, wastes our time. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. I mean, the place and the day and the age we're living is not good. We want to make something of it. Light in the dark. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God. This is his thalema will again. This like broad desire of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Old-fashioned word. Looked up a few different definitions of this one. Debauchery means like squandering something. Uh, debauchery means uh, like uh, uh, something that's unsafe or easily influenced or prodigal. Like picture those, my, like something that's lost, something that's fickle, something that's hard to hold on to, something that's being squandered. So this drunkenness with wine is like squandering the time instead of making best use of it. Does it sound like many parties we've been to or times where alcohol was too much? It's just wasting our time instead of making the most of our time. And instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. So he's putting those two on par. So something that people could get out of drinking alcohol is something that should be gotten by drinking the Holy Spirit. Okay, what would that thing be? What do we get from alcohol, this squandering sort of like comfort, this, this place where our inhibitions are down, we can say what we want, we can do what we want, where we're maybe more like peaceful, our minds have more like relaxation in them, joy, fun, fill whatever 
adjectives you want in there. You realize he's saying those are things that can be sourced from God in a way that will make the best use of all the time, or there are ways that we can go this way and it will become a waste of our time, but they're both able to meet the same craving. And it's that sense of comfort. So in all of our little examples there, come home from work like, oh, or get out of a, a fight or an argument. It's like, oh, I just need a drink. Others might say, oh, I just need a smoke or, oh man, I just need cheesecake. Like whatever. You need something to feel good in this moment because you don't feel good. Like those can be temporarily grasped in a way that is a waste, but they're also offered in this other way, this comfort. And, and this reminded me of a, um, a catechism answer that I wanted to read for you. Uh, some of you who might have grown up in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a catechism there you learn in CCD. Uh, many different branches of the church have this as like a tool to teach the children what their uh, Bible means, what their church teaches, all those sort of catechism. It's, it's just Sunday school, it's teaching. But often it's a memorization. Here's a question, here's an answer. So this one form of catechism is called the Heidelberg Catechism. I love this one. And the first question is one of my favorite questions of all. And it spe speaks specifically to the idea of where do we find our comfort. So I just want to read it for you. Don't write this down, but look it up and certainly listen to it. What is your only comfort in life and death? This is what the teacher would ask. That's the question. Then the student would respond with this answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. And he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So it's kind of like this wonderful long statement about the full faith, what it is, and that's why it's question number one. It's meant to set the tone for all the questions that come after it. But the question is, what's your only comfort? What's your only comfort? And not just now, but it's in life and in death. The things which are temporary comforts, waste of time comforts now, can do nothing for you in death. There's only one comfort that's available now and later. And he's saying this is the fact that Jesus Christ has bought us. We are not our own. It's the will of the Heavenly Father that dictates my entire life. So if we were to reflect for a moment what makes us feel better when we feel low? Is it having a few drinks? Is it eating? Is it going out to eat? Is it watching TV? Is it escapism in any form, substance in any form? Or is it coming to God and saying, I need your Holy Spirit right now because I am empty and I'm being tempted by all these things that are a waste of my time. They're prodigal, they're unsafe, they're insecure, they're fleeting. And they're all going to come with their own kind of baggage. I want something that's good for now and forever. It's like a hard thing to do because you're expecting that your spiritual connection with God is going to fix the emotional feeling of the moment. But that is 
how it's supposed to work. That is how it's supposed to work. Jesus said, my food is not food that you see. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Like, I have food you know nothing about. It's supposed to satisfy. I feel like this is a great convicting moment for, for me as I was thinking about this before and for all of us. When we need to be satisfied, do we turn to God? I feel like if we're honest, a lot of times we don't. We have all these other methods of feeling good or of passing the time or of just getting out of it. Like, if we feel low, do we go to Jesus? If we feel sad, do we pray for the Holy Spirit? If we're looking for joy, if we're trying to feel comfortable, if we just came out of a difficult crisis or something, there's this amazing source, this spring of water, eternal water flowing up that's supposed to make us feel good, not just think good. It's supposed to nurture our souls. And yet we put Jesus on the shelf in a book and we think he's the one that we're supposed to know about. But if you really want to feel better, you got to go someplace else for that. Well, no wonder so many people eventually feel like, well, who can do this faith thing? Because they've locked it away in their heads when it's supposed to be the thing that fills us with inexpressible joy. So here's the exercise. Here's the experiment that you could do. Ask other Christians, when are some times when you were so filled with excitement and joy because of God that you couldn't stand Put people on the spot. Ask them. Interview them. Oh, this is my style, right? Interview people. I love this. Interview someone. Can any of us remember, and I'm going to give you a second, don't say it, but when you remember at one moment in your life, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to keep giving examples until I can see if I can trigger enough thoughts. Have any of you ever been on a retreat, like a Christian retreat, whether as a kid, like a week away in the summer, or a Christian retreat where you just like felt like the presence of God was there and during worship or when the person was speaking, that you just like felt good? If that's happened to anybody, put your hand up and keep your hand up. Has anybody here felt a moment where they were singing songs, whether it's, you know, in your radio or at home? or quiet or walking around or at church where it just feels like something's happening here. Put your hands up. Have you ever had a moment where you listen to a sermon, whether it's me in person or on the radio, like, that person just spoke to me. It's exactly what I need. I just pressed power on my radio and like God spoke to me and it felt so good because Jesus sees me. These are our hands up in the air because we felt that. Now put your hands down. No hands raised for this, but have we ever felt really bad after waking up of a night of drinking? Yes. Have we felt really loved after eating too much and then feeling like I regret that decision? Have we ever felt awful after running to escapism, whether it's books or movies or pornography or something just to make us feel good? Afterwards, it didn't work. It was a prodigal moment. It was a squandering of time. Make the best use of our time. And if we can all say that there's been at least one moment that we know it that feels good, we got to get back to that on a daily basis. What if your life felt like that more and more? And what if it was our first thought? Will of God is not that I comfort myself through any of these temporary things that aren't going to work, but the desire of God is that I would be filled with that goodness of God when I need it most. So the exercise may help us learn from each other. And I don't know if I'll have us turn. I don't think I'll have us turn right now and answer this. But would you ask each other? What's a moment where you had that? I think almost every hand was up here. So many of us, and even things might trigger later, you might think about this for yourself. I hope you do. I hope we can hold on to those things. Because every place that someone has experienced that moment is a place we also could go. 
we live the same life. We have different experiences, different personalities, different whatever, but like we're people, we're all people. So if any one of us have had that moment, all of us can have that moment. And if all of us have had it in multiple places, we know it's not a one-time thing in our life. God is there for the encounter again and again and again and again. And it's good and it's still good and he's still good and he's always good and he's better. So this is the will of God. This is the will of God. That we wouldn't just look to drinking or to anything else, but we would look to the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be amazing if being filled with the Holy Spirit could be the greatest experience of our lives? We'd want it more. We'd search for it more. It would be the thing that we pursue. It should be. So do some interviews. Uh, ask people to reveal what were their secrets of like joy. What, what revealed God's joy to them? It reminded me of uh, Philippians 4 where it says, I've learned the secret of being content in any situation. I can do all things through Christ. So whether well-fed or in plenty, whether in want or in plenty, this sort of concept. So ask someone what their secrets are. If you know someone that feels particularly joyful, finds comfort and doesn't seem to have to run to other sources. What is it? Like, where do they find it? Learn from each other. And that brings us to our last one for today. Last practical example, it's in John chapter 6. So please turn there. This again, just a couple of verses, but they teach just specifically, this is the will of God. And then give us practical key thoughts to take into our lives to bless us. Not to restrict us, not to cramp our style, not to harm us, but to bless us. God's way is a better way than the world. So John 6, we'll read the verse, it's in verse 40. That's the first, and then we're going to back up and read a couple of verses before it that help elaborate on it just a little bit. But first, the verse, this is about believing, believing, believing. We may be here because we believe. We may be here because we're interested. We're considering what belief is like, kind of like searching a little bit. Uh, there may be some of us here who have a hard time believing either certain parts of what the Bible teaches or certain parts of faith. Belief can be very difficult. So let's think about practically living out the will of God in believing. John 6, 40. This is Jesus speaking. These are words you can trust. Jesus says, this is the will of my Father. So get ready, there's truth coming. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, so he's talking about himself, looks on the Son and believes in Him, should have eternal life. And I, Jesus, will raise Him up on the last day. So judgment day, our dying day, the end day, the last day. I will raise Him up. So this is a statement of what it means to be a believer. And it's saying that believing this is the will of God. So that's interesting. The will of God is that we would believe. All right, let me read it for us one more time. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Now, back up to verse 27 to 29. In this whole long conversation, because we're not taking sentences out of Jesus' whole um, monologue or dialogue. We read them in context. Sometimes on Sundays we study them in short, but it's part of a whole conversation. So if you back up to verse 27, just a little bit before, Jesus says this, Do not work for the food that perishes, 
So don't just work for your job, don't just work for your paycheck, don't just work for your food on your table, don't just work for your vacations, don't just work for your hobbies, don't just work for your car, your cell phone bill, your mortgage, don't just work for those things, the food that perishes, the things that are temporary, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Can we just, even for a second, just stop and say, how amazing would it be if we could do anything in this life that would last forever? We can. That's the beauty of our faith. The things we do last for other eternal things that we're doing. So many people work so hard to make their name remembered. Um, Griffin and I were in New York City the last couple of days, and we had like a fun little trip for him and me. Asked me about it sometime. We had a great time. Um, but we're looking at these huge buildings, Rockefeller Center. Right? All these buildings named after these people. And the, these companies right now with huge billboards, you know, Times Square with just like, as far as the eye can see, screens and whatnot. And all these people are trying to make a name for themselves. Their name is big on these buildings and engraved in these like bronze plaques on the front of these really old skyscrapers and New York City buildings. Those people want to be remembered. They want their name remembered by, we, we don't know who those people are, but we walk those streets, we see that thing, like, that must have been somebody back in the day. But it doesn't last. We don't know who they are, unless you go and do some research. They're not around today. So the best they can do is have their name be on a building, and maybe in Wikipedia, so that someone in the future could go back and be like, oh, that was pretty cool, they, they accomplished something. But the things we do for God are actually eternal actually last forever. The ways that we bless people we're doing for God, those are riches and rewards and blessings on them and on us that we see reward for when we see God face to face, that he remembers, that determine whether or not we're heading towards eternity with him or not. Like they're, they're eternal benefits, not just our name on the building. We're, we're going to put a sign up here. We're praying for it to happen sometime this winter. We'll see how we go. But, you know, the center on Main. Eventually that sign's going to wither and fall down. There's no sign on there now. And there used to be. So what happened to the sign on the front? Dead, fallen, rotted, gone. It used to be an old J.C. Penney back in 1930s. J.C. Penney, that's a name we know. But we don't, do we know him anymore? And eventually there'll be no more J.C. Penney branches. Because it's just worldly stuff. We're talking about much better stuff than just an, a worldly legacy here. So this is the eternal stuff Jesus is talking about. Back to verse 27 from my long-winded tangent. Back on track, verse 27. Do not work for food or things that perish, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, this is Jesus' title for himself, which the Son of Man will give to you. So Jesus gives us the eternal stuff to do the eternal stuff. The eternal tools to do the eternal deeds. For on him, on Christ, God the Father has set his seal. So they said to him, all right, what must we do? Like, give us the deeds. What are the deeds to be doing the works of God, right? Like, okay, great. Give me some tools. I'm going to get to work. This is us. Like, okay, it's a trunk or treat. Okay, how can I do a thing? Give me something to do. Okay, we're going to have a, a Thursday night group. And a Wednesday. like, well, give me something to do because we like that. We like to be active. We like to feel useful. They asked him the question. And he stops them in their tracks and says, this is the work. I'm about to define it for you. That you believe in Jesus, whom God has sent. The work is not the work. The work is believing. And everything we do, our doings, come from our believing. But it's actually much harder. And that's the point of this that I want to make. It's much harder to believe than to do. 
What's easier, to go on church on Sunday or believe every single thing in the Bible happened exactly the way it happened? Which is harder? The belief, there's so much there. Which is harder, to go to a soup kitchen and to serve soup or believe that Jesus Christ is God in human form who died and rose from the dead and will return? Give me soup. (laughs) That's easier. Works are easier than faith. And that's why it gets so confusing for doing lots of good things but we really don't believe. So what is the will of God? He's like, well, yeah, there's lots of doings. But the core will of God, the big work, our life's work, our like, masterpiece is believing in Jesus. Because if you can do that, trust me, everything we do and say and act, that'll be different. But if that's not there, everything out there is useless. Because we're not going to be judged by this big checklist of how good of a person we were. We're going to be based on, did we love Jesus? And he's going to be like, yes, you loved me. I see you. And yeah, there were some things that were kind of fails. But you loved me, and I love you. There were some things that were great successes. You're welcome. I made those happen. Right? It's all him in the good, and it's our weakness in the bad. But that's what he's going to say. He's going to recognize his people, just like the shepherd knows his sheep. And there's no amount of laundry list of accomplishments or names on buildings that will be able to hold up to be like, see, look at all that I did. He's going to be like, your work was just to believe me. And it's way harder. We talk about missions and we think about foreign missions overseas. It's way easier to give money to a missionary who's going to go to Romania or to someplace else to do the work, right? Can we agree to that? It's easier than uprooting your whole life and moving to Romania or another part of the world. So we recognize that. It's easier to do a good deed than it is to believe. So in this whole progression, it's easier to give to someone else to do, and then after that, it's easier to do. And then the hardest thing of all is to truly believe it all. And that's, we come back to our can't wound and grace all over again. We find ourselves struggling with implementing the will of God. We have to say, I I can't sometimes. I try. I want to believe. God, help me. Or I won't. I refuse to believe this about the Bible or this about the resurrection or that. I'm not going to believe that. That's crazy. I would hope that you would pray that God would make you want to want to believe everything in the Bible. Because the minute you start chopping things out of the Bible, where are you going to stop? I don't like that. All right. Cutting floor. I don't like that. Cutting floor. What are you going to end up with? Whatever you like. Because you're going to cut out everything you don't like. And everything you understand. And what's going to end up on the floor? Everything you don't understand. So if everything you don't like and everything you don't understand is on the cutting room floor, you end up with a very manageable God. It's easy to keep him happy and fully understand him. That's not how God is supposed to be. He's supposed to be unknowable, incomprehensible, a world maker, a universe creator unknowable, except in the little bits of glimpses that we can get of him. So all the stuff on the cutting room floor is actually the stuff we need the most. Unless we're just inventing our own religion along the way and calling it Christianity minus everything that we don't like or don't understand. So the belief is the hardest thing. So if you have trouble believing certain things, consider yourselves in good company. And that's okay. Think about it. Is it like, I can't understand it? There are things in the Bible that I read that I still can't understand. 
But there are also things that in my life I couldn't understand at one point, and years later something clicked in that. I was like, oh, 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 and it came clear. So I'm being patient with the things that I don't still understand. Because I think either in this life at a later time with a little more wisdom, a little more experience, a little more revelation, or after this life when all becomes clear, that stuff will make sense too. So I'm willing to know what I know and believe what I believe and wait for the things that I still can't understand because God's bigger than me. And if I can't understand, it doesn't mean it's not true. It means that I'm small and he's big and that's good for us and how we think about our God. Believing is difficult. You know, for you as an individual, well, what's your reputation? Is it a reputation for being a, a person who does a lot of good things? Or is it a reputation for a person who has a love for God and believes completely? As a church, we like mission. You saw our arrows, right? Well, we'll be a church that gets a reputation for doing a lot of good deeds in the community. Or a church that gets a reputation for loving God more than anything and then doing some stuff along the way, right? Which order are we gonna put it? Who will we be known for? What will be on the front of our building? What will be on our tombstones? That kind of thing, legacy stuff here. And it all has to do with believing. Everything is built on that. All right. This is a perfect place to enter into communion it's all about belief. Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, this, if we take this, it means yes. Do we believe that he rose from the dead? This is celebration of resurrection. So if we take this, we say yes. We're like reminding ourselves and challenging our belief. Is it there? Is it where it needs to be? But there's this great passage where Paul talks about community. He says, therefore, each one should examine himself beforehand to make sure that he's in the faith, so to speak. Otherwise, you can eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Like we're promising God verbally, visually, collectively, I love you and I believe, I believe it all. And the parts that I don't, I trust you with. If we can't do that mentally, we shouldn't do this physically. It's a participation in that full belief. Can't wound our grace. <laughs> this is all about God's grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's not waiting for us to get it all figured out. He's initiating. He's going first. He's loving us. He's sacrificing. He's teaching. He's coming. He's filling. He's doing this stuff. We just need to respond. So this is a moment of response. And as Hope and I come to the front and start playing a little music, uh, I'll have the ushers pass out the communion elements. Um, but as this moment settles right here, this is a moment to bring all the questions, bring all your doubts, bring all the baggage to God in prayer and be like, all right, God, this is where I'm not sure. Help me want to want whatever you want. Your wishes, your will become our will. So if I could invite us all to just take a moment for silent reflection let the piano kind of play a little bit and ushers, if you'd come forward and just quietly begin distributing the elements. We're going to sing a few verses in a moment of amazing grace, and then we'll stop and we'll take communion together in the middle of the song collectively. So just take the elements when they come, hold on to them. Please pray those prayers of request, those prayers of confession, those prayers of love. Just spend a moment with the Father now 
and then we'll celebrate what it is that we believe together.